How's it going, everybody? This is Dan Figella here at Tech Emergence, where we interview investors, uh, researchers, and entrepreneurs in the domain of emerging technology. Today, I've got uh, Mr. Paul Silva, uh, involved in many, many levels of the entrepreneurial ecosystem, presently manager of River, River Valley Investors out in Western Massachusetts, also president of Click Workspace, um, as well as involvement with a number of universities and a ton of other uh, various things, which I'm sure we're going to touch upon. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be able to have you on. I know the topic you and I had, had chatted about really kind of honing in on today um, is going to be the startup ecosystem in and of itself. You know, we were catching up off microphone about how different uh, the ball game is, quote unquote, uh, for the, the, in the entrepreneurial world for the average startup, the new startup now than it was, you know, five years ago, never mind 10 years ago. Um, uh, maybe you can kind of give us a description of the different tiers and strata of what people mean when they talk about ecosystem, what that really kind of means and implies for you, because I know you're embedded in so many of those kind of different levels. Sure. Um, so the ecosystem analogy is an apt one, because in order for an organism to live, they have to live uh, thanks to the partnership of lots of other organisms that are above and below it in the food chain or adjacent to it. And if a startup wants to survive, it, it needs to be, or it'll be a lot more successful if it's in some part of the country or the world where there's lots of other kinds of entities that will help it in some way, shape, or form. And so places like Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, um, have some of the hottest places in the world, the best ecosystems. Everything you could possibly want is there. You go to a coffee shop, and you will bump into three venture capitalists and three lawyers that know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and if you're, in, if you're in the middle of nowhere, then you know the lawyers look at you funny like, why would I talk to you? You're a startup. By definition, you have no money. Talk to you later. You know, so you got to have those pieces in place. And Western Massachusetts has been working very hard um, to build up an ecosystem. And it has finally hit a tipping point in the past couple of years. It's been exciting. Cool. Um, and... And in terms of the, the elements of that, you know, you had mentioned sort of really using the very literal nature analogy of, you know, organisms above and below or adjacent on the food chain to be able to kind of support that sort of life. Um, what do you see as those different levels and strata? I think a lot of people are familiar with, you know, let's say angel investors and VCs, right? Like everybody understands that. And then, you know, I think um, accelerators are, you know, common enough for people to be familiar with. What are those other moving parts um, in, in that entirety of the ecosystem. Uh, we're talking ecosystems in general or Western Massachusetts? Um, well, it just, I guess in general, I mean, and I imagine that applies to Western general, Mass, right? Western <laughs> that, Mass that'll here. apply, that'll apply to Western Mass just as it would anywhere in the world. So startups in general. So you need the, um, the colleges have to be involved, uh, because, uh, while the average entrepreneur is the age of 40, and that's an important, a lot of times people think all entrepreneurs are fresh out of college, it's not the case. Um, but uh, fresh out of college entrepreneurs are a very important source of entrepreneurs because they're the ones that are much more likely to create giant companies, right? And all companies are important, and the backbone of the American economy is not giant companies, it's small companies. But if you want to have the sort of big home runs, you know, the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsofts are not started by 40-somethings stereotypically, right? Yep. And I'm approaching 40, so therefore my hope of creating such a big company is apparently gone. Damn. Um, <laughs> so you want to have a great ecosystem so that college uh, students and recent grads um, get some basic education and they have some access to whatever intellectual property is being generated at their institution. So hopefully their institution has some good intellectual property regulations so that the students can take that intellectual property and create companies without too many hoops. So that's the first layer that you need is that sort of collegiate education. Related to it, you need some other education for the folks that aren't in college 
um, those are the 40-somethings perhaps, but maybe maybe they'll go to a college and they can take an entrepreneurship course, and maybe there's courses being offered by non-collegiate entities, such as, for instance, my incubator that I run is not uh, affiliated with the university, but we teach courses in entrepreneurship, and none of our students are college students. So you need the education layer. And then after you've got the basic education layer, so that's the I have an idea, what is a business plan? The next step in the process is, okay, so now I'm going to launch my business, and uh, but no one in their right mind would give me money yet. So what do I do now? And that's the mentoring layer. So that's where a bunch of people that are not going to worry about book knowledge, people with real-world experience, you need to connect with them, and they've got to giggle at you with the things that you're wrong about and introduce you to people that can help you. And sometimes they're giggling and they're wrong, and that's, you know, the world didn't even know the search engine in 2000, but the Google boys are doing okay. Yep. So sometimes you're giggling, you know, just keep it to yourself. But the important thing is you need that social capital. You know, financial capital is very important, but social capital is the most important resource any entrepreneur can acquire. And so this mentoring level is really important. You have to find some way of accessing it. Most places do mentoring in a sort of one-on-one setup, or you might go to an organization and they have sort of a dating process where they have a big pool of mentors and and then you give them your profile, and they sort of have a Match.com system where they try to figure out who they should match you up with. And I forget the Yiddish word for the matchmaker in between, but you know that's the role that they play. Um, and then there are organizations where it's um, a lot more freeform. But either way, an entrepreneur really needs to build up that social capital. The great challenge is for entrepreneurs that don't have a lot of, I think, social capital. Maybe they're international students that don't have a social network here. Maybe they didn't go to an Ivy League school, whatever. If they don't have that, then they really try to make that up. Because if you don't know the right people, you won't learn the things you need to learn. So that's a mentoring layer. Got it. Then when you've gotten past, and not that mentoring ever stops, mentoring goes on for the rest of your life, but that's sort of the most pivotal time in your life to get that mentoring. Next layer is often um, where you're going to get funding. And there's a variety of funding sources. Sometimes when you're in college, there are business fund competitions and things like that. We can get grants that will help you get your idea off the ground. There are accelerators and things of that nature that you've already talked about that are usually a great place for raw startups that are past the eye, have an idea stage, they've got a little bit of mentoring in them, they've got some kind of validation their idea might be in the right direction, and they can, you know, enter one of these awesome accelerators. After that's usually the angel investors, after that's usually the venture capitalists sewing up the funding food chain. Yep. And another important piece that I only really started to appreciate about a year and a half ago is space, that um, us humans need to physically be next to each other to really let the magic happen. <laughs> yes. Which is why so many people move to major hubs of uh, entrepreneurship and they leave wherever they're from because they just need to be physically proximate. And sometimes at the bar scene, um, the accelerator, someone has to create a space. The co-working spaces are exploding all over the country and they're really creating a wonderful third place where entrepreneurs go and bump into each other and get work done. So um, in big broad strokes, I say those are the key pieces of any entrepreneurship ecosystem. That's cool. Okay, I, 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 um, it's cool to think about it that way. Actually, in order, I think often, even in my own mind, sometimes even speaking with investors and entrepreneurs, pretty much on a daily basis, and covering events and writing, um, it, it still sort of seems like just a myriad of of things or a cornucopia of things. But it's cool to kind of understand again different levels and, and layers there. Space, I think, is often left out, although now, again, becoming so much more popular. I know we're going to get back into that in a second here. Um, I think a lot of people a lot of people forget about those other potential ways of getting initial funding. So you had mentioned you know, business plan competitions, grants, accelerator programs. I think a lot of people are, are of the belief that, you know, 
it's it's either family or friend money or it's you know lemonade selling over the summer money that has to fund you know the initial 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 steps of a startup um who who has access to biz plan competitions to grants uh, to accelerators? Are, are there some biz plan competitions that are outside of colleges? How can people maybe tap a little bit more into those if they're a really emerging entrepreneur? Oh, uh, yeah, there's, um, I don't have a link off the top of my head, but if you just Google business plan competition, you know, listing directory, uh, there's some organization that's compiled a list of them all. And every competition has its own rules. So the, the UMass Innovation Challenge, you have to either be a current UMass student or an alum to participate in, but there's lots of business plan competitions that are not tied to universities at all, or they're loosely tied to universities, they don't care who you are or how old you are, you can enter into the competition just as long as you meet their other criteria. Yep. So there's lots of opportunities for uh, quote-unquote free money, money that you don't have to pay back, you have to work your ass off, but you don't have to pay it back. And, uh, and every single college has some kind of little bucket of money. You know, so I'll share my anecdotes, which won't be very helpful for people right now because those sources of funding probably don't even exist. But the pattern is what's there. So I was trying to create my first company, which made video games for the blind. And uh, my college is partnered with four of the colleges in the area. And so there was an assistive technology center that was at Hampshire College. And they had a whole fabrication facility. They loved helping disabled people. They heard about what we were trying to do. It was in software. And they gave us, we filled them some paper. We got a $2,000 grant. You know, and back then the computer cost two grand. So we bought, we bought a computer so we could actually try to make a video game company. And that was free money. Yeah, you know, that's... And then we entered a business plan competition. We won another couple grand. And then that also, more importantly, gave us prestige, right? Because we had no credibility whatsoever. We were a landscape architect and a theoretical physicist trying to make video games for the blind. So winning a few competitions gave us entree to other places. And so entrepreneurs not only get that money, but they need to build some gravitas because they don't have gray hair yet. Huh, yeah, so so that that can give you a little bit of that, too, in terms of cred. Yep. And where where might those grants sort of exist? Again, you, you guys had a, uh, your entrepreneurial venture, again, was pretty well tied in with, um, uh, potentially, I don't know if we call it a philanthropic cause, but but a, a social cause, again, helping cause. helping blind folks. So that, that seems to maybe be a little bit more grant-worthy, at least by my bold assumption here. Um, what what other potential access is there for grants? I know again you're involved with a number of different universities and sort of entrepreneurship stuff. What's kind of still out there? Where do people get this? There are grants for all kinds of things everywhere. For you know, women-founded startups, for for engineering-based uh, innovation, for medical device such and such, um, for the, the for second-generation. Uh, Pakistani immigrants, you know, there's this place for everything <laughs> if you know where to look. Yeah, um, so the yeah, trick yeah. is to, to go looking and to just get tied into the, the culture of wherever you are. You're generally going to get money from people you can physically meet because of the human relationship issue. If it's small, if it's big money, there's databases you can, you know, go to your library, your, your school library, and you can get free access to these really expensive databases. Um, but that's only if you're trying to get really big checks to fund Nonprofit, you know, your own nonprofit activity. If you're just trying to get startup money for your startup nonprofit or for profit, you got to go to these little. Like, no one would have found the grant I got. It wasn't in a database anywhere. I had to, you know, socially network to find who they were. But once you understand what your business is about, you get, you work your ass off, go to every networking event that you can, has to do with entrepreneurship in your neck of the woods, and you tell people what you're about. And if you communicate your passion, they will introduce you, as long as you're not a jerk, to someone that can probably lead you to the right direction at some pot of money that 
I could have never imagined that such a pot of money exists. If someone's in college, though, they should definitely check out NCIIA.org. It's a play on the, the, the basketball or what is it, the NCAA? I'm not a yeah, yeah. Anyway, but NCIIA.org is an organization that gives money away to college entrepreneurs um, all throughout the country. And two or three times a year, you can apply on their website and get free money. And they've got massive connections up to some of the most amazing resources in the world for helping entrepreneurs. So everyone should take advantage of, of that. Okay. You've even got some grant money to create courses at the University of Cameron. So if you're at all affiliated with the university, you know, that's a source of $15,000 initial grant money um, in addition to sort of trying to find your own pockets. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, I certainly didn't know about that in undergrad or graduate school. Um, and, and then uh, accelerator programs are out there as well. I know there's different sorts of accelerators too. Um, you know, there's accelerators that, you know, uh, have some kind of an application process, but really only kind of like a ceremonial amount of money that you actually have to pay to get in there. There's other ones that are a little bit pricier. There's other ones that, you know, potentially select companies and then give them some bucks and then also get some very early little seed stake in companies that they kind of pluck from. Um, I, I think there's a lot of diversity there. Uh, like an accelerator to me doesn't always mean and imply precisely the same thing. Maybe speak to a little bit of the variance and difference there and, and what might be a fit for different kind of people. Sure. Well, I think you, you captured it well. Uh, accelerators are very new. So uh, like any new thing, like when bicycles came out, if you look at the first 10 years of the bicycle industry, you wouldn't recognize most of the bikes because they hadn't figured out that, you know, two wheels about the same size at a certain distance apart is what's going to work. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, so they had a lot of innovation and a lot of ideas and there was a bicycle boom and then bicycles, you know, there was a bust and all the bad ideas got um, pushed out. And right now, um, accelerators are hot and with good reason. Um, there are some accelerators delivering amazing results. You know, Y Combinator is the first one. They're the you know they're the platinum brand in the market space. Um, and so there's a lot of imitators, which is a great thing because it means there's a lot of innovation. People trying to design new ways of doing accelerators yes. to make them better. Yep. But it's still too early for them to have gone bust. So in a few years, a lot of these are going to be dead, and a lot of the models of accelerators will be dead. You just don't know which ones they're going to be. So it, that means it's an exciting time. Entrepreneurs, so there's lots of these pots of money that are a little bit easier to get at than you normally would have been able to, and they're explicitly targeted at raw seed stage companies. When traditionally, you know, angels don't fund seed stage companies anymore, VCs haven't funded seed stage companies in 20 years, with, with some notable rare exceptions. Um, so, accelerator is definitely a hot opportunity, and of course, crowdfunding is uh, is a new thing in the past couple of years. Yep. And that's radically changed the landscape for entrepreneurs as well. I'm telling almost all my entrepreneurs, you know, you get on this, figure out, you know, and if, if Kickstarter is appropriate for you, why aren't you doing it? Because in my guess is that in five years' time, um, most angel groups, when you apply, they'll ask, who, give me the link to your successful, you know, crowdfunding campaign. Because if you don't have that link, I'm not interested in seeing your application. I think it will just start to become a filter. Wow. Interesting. Um, why do you say that, just out of my curiosity? Well, any, any funding vehicle, um, whether it's an accelerator, angel group, venture capital firm, or an HR group trying to decide who to give jobs to, always has a zillion applicants and very few slots that they can fund. And the number one challenge is, you know, 
each application takes a lot of time to read and to vet properly. You can't algorithmically do it. So you got to have a smart human, probably five smart humans, look at it. And that's just too expensive. It never works. So we all have to come up with you know, rules of thumb to automatically disqualify people so that we can focus our attention on the number of teams that we actually have the human resources to focus on. Yeah. And so uh, it, with crowdfunding becoming such a successful way of companies getting funding from their customers, I mean, if you can raise a million dollars from investors, you know, bravo to you, but it's not as good as raising a million dollars from customers. No, right? yeah, it's definitely so, not. If you've got validation, you just prove it that you can sell to customers, not convince investors that maybe. So eventually, the angels who are desperately looking for ways to figure out which deals to focus on are just going to say, well, we're already paying more attention to the ones that go through the crowdfunding. Oh, they, they, they sold 100,000 units on Kickstarter. They, they've, got, they've got to have something. Yeah. Get the first layer of filtration. Let's go have a date with these guys. That's Maybe cool. That's cool. Okay. That, yeah, that's an interesting uh, kind of prediction as to where the, the the ecosystem might move in flux. Also, the insights on how new accelerators are and how much variance we're seeing right now and what might stick and what, what might not, um, what might kind of raise to the top here. Um, I, I know you touched on it briefly and, and uh, in colleges. You mentioned um, intellectual property, if I'm not mistaken, and sort of how that functions and filters and moves through um, university, uh, how, how did you, how did you mean that? You're saying, you know, if, if they don't have, you know, if they have good, uh, you know, like in, intellectual property rules or something, I think we kind of glossed over it, but I, I think maybe that's sort of an interesting thing to, to touch on. Sure. I mean, uh, if you're an undergraduate, usually it's not an issue because, um, you're not an employee of the university. They don't own your ideas. But if you're a graduate student, the way the contracts are written at many universities, um, they own any idea that comes out of your head, and universities, are, they're not mean, they're not cruel, they're, they're, they're as rational as any other human institution, and so they get all this intellectual property that sits on a shelf, and of course, what they want to do is monetize that. But the thing is, big universities don't know how to do startups. What they know how to do is, you invented a kind of glue, I'll call up 3M. 3M likes to buy glue. And so they're really good about there's these 20 companies that are big companies that I have relationships with their, you know, their acquisition guys. And uh, I call them up and, you know, I know what the dance is. And then if I can sell this license, I just made the university millions of dollars a year. So it's a, you know, it's a big win. And so that's what the whole intellectual property office is sort of designed to do is to monetize those kinds of assets. And if you have intellectual property that is startup worthy, but no, you know, it's too primitive for big, big companies don't want to take risks like that. Big companies want to scale up successful things. That's what they're good at. So if you invented some, you know, new kind of polymer that conceptually could reduce drag with water um, for a boat by 70%, but it only works on boats that are six inches long so far because that's how big your lat bench is, yeah. you know, 3M, 3M's not going to buy that. Yeah. They'll buy it if it works on container ships. That's yep. for damn sure, but they're not going to buy it if it works only on six-inch boats. And the licensing office doesn't not, they don't know who to call, and no one will pay them millions of dollars. So the bad licensing offices, again, they're not jerks, it's just natural incentives. They don't know what to do with it, but they're afraid. What if I license it to this entrepreneur, I just give it away, and then they make a billion dollars and I don't get anything from it. And so they, they, you know, they see that they can only lose 
by licensing it away. Um, so those are the bad um, bosses, the ones that are too afraid of letting go. The really enlightened people basically say, here, here's the deal. It's a really simple contract. I'm either giving it to you or I'm giving you really simple terms. And, uh, you know, if you're a success, then I'll get some money because I get, a, I get a piece of your company and it's a real straightforward transaction. Or some places literally give it to you because they figure you'll write a larger donation check as an alum yeah. than you would ever do in licensing fees. So what, you know, the people that don't hold it tight realize that I can't monetize this asset anyway. So it doesn't hurt me to give it away. And if these people turn it into something, then great. I mean, if I thought I could sell it to 3M, I would not let the kids try to make a company with it. I'd sell it to 3M. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know, just... So I think that's a great challenge. And so if you're a graduate student from working in a lab that's invented a new kind of coding, that will, you know, if you've got the six-inch boat in your lab, you know, and you're like, wow, you know, I, I don't want to go see if I can make this work on a six-foot boat. You know, if your universities get stupid policies, then they won't let you have the intellectual property, which means you can't build a business. Huh. So really understand that as you move into graduate education. You know, what are you walking into in terms of, you know, uh, freeing or containing your future possibilities? Absolutely. You want to understand your contract and the intellectual property um, policies at your, at your institution. Um, and you also want to understand that uh, sometimes graduate students come up with ideas that are not related to their day-to-day -day work. And oftentimes the university does not own they only own what you do in the lab. Yeah. But you know, if you've got a if you got a if you've got a jerk or an unenlightened person in the IP office, they might just say, "Look, I, you know, how do I know that that's not related? I own anything. You need to prove to me that your idea isn't owned by my university." Yeah. So just you know, if, you, if you're really interested in being an entrepreneur, you just need to figure that out. But if you're really interested in being an entrepreneur, you're probably not a graduate student. You know, what usually happens is you're a graduate student because you love your science, and then along the way, you discover something fascinating, you might discover that you want to be an entrepreneur. I never knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I discovered it by accident. Yep. <laughs> um, the hard way, I guess, as, as they would say. Yeah. Um, so, okay, cool. That's that's a pretty interesting layer, and I'm, I'm sort of glad we went into that, because I, I don't think I've touched on that with any previous investor interviews, or even speaking with startups about potential conundrums or opportunities. I think that that's... Um, that, that's that's an entirely different kind of can of worms. So understanding what that contract um, means and implies. I, I suppose really where I'd like to wrap up, Paul, in terms of insights and stuff that we could drive home before maybe we catch up a little bit more about what's up on Western Mass and where people can learn about you, um, is is where you feel like most new startup founders, um, you know, new startups in general, could get more from their ecosystem than they are. You know, where where are most people kind of missing the boat in terms of social capital, in terms of uh, opportunity? Um, where do you see it most often whiffed where you just feel like, man, if more startups would only do these things, what are those things in your mind? Oh, interesting. I'd say uh, the two biggest things are uh, get yourself the right education on entrepreneurship, which you don't need to go to college for. Um, and, and that right education is the Lean Launchpad, uh, so Google Lean Launchpad, Steve Blank, and he's open sourced all of his course materials. He's created a Udacity version so you can watch the lectures from the master himself. Um, and you can teach yourself at your own pace at home, which is great. If, if you're from one of the dozen universities uh, that is partnered with him, then they might actually offer the class at your campus, in which case you, you, 
you're better off taking it with a professor kicking your rear end every week to make sure that you're being held accountable. Yeah. Um, but that is by far the best curriculum. And I've been teaching entrepreneurship for close to 15 years. I'm very proud of the curriculum I've worked so hard to build. I have students that say lovely things that make me feel all warm and fuzzy. And then I taught this curriculum. And in one semester, I did more, my students did more than my old students would have done in two years with my curriculum that I was so proud of. So I've taken the old curriculum and I've thrown it in the fire because this crap compared to this. This is so much better for helping entrepreneurs. Wow not screw up. Huh, so this is this is pretty curious. I mean, I know obviously many folks are going to be familiar with, with Blank and, and his work. Um, you're talking about a, the Lean Launchpad. Uh, go a little bit more into this specific resource maybe and, you know, what the URL is or, or what people should be looking up. Sure. Uh, if they go, just go to Udacity, which is the word Audacity without the A in the front. So Udacity.com is one of the massively open online course sites that the Stanford spin out. Um, and on there they've got the how to start a startup or something. You just If you Google Lean Launchpad um, Udacity, you'll get the direct link. And um, and that is Steve taking his lectures from this course that he's developed and field tested on over 500 startups with the National Science Foundation and measured the results, which are scary good. Um, and so all those videos are there. You can sign up for the course and you can literally take it anytime you want. So any entrepreneur that's serious should just go there and study at the feet of the master right now and put their company through it. Now any company that calls me when I've got my angel investor hat on, I'm immediately analyzing it with the, with the lens of that curriculum because it's so much better. Wow, powerful the stuff. Real, the, really, the really short version of the curriculum because it fits in a blog post is uh, you know, it's not about uh, making a beautiful presentation on why, my, why God has whispered in my I, his, uh, the truth in my ear and I am now going to tell you angel investors what this idea is. Yep. Here's the problem, here's the solution, how many dollars on the problem, all that's a standard pitch deck. The Lean Launchpad philosophy is here was my idea, here is how I tested to see if I was right, here is how I was so damn wrong. I was smoking something. But I learned this and that led to a new idea which I tested in this way and I found that I was still wrong. But I learned something else, and that led to this, because we all know, I've been teaching my students forever this, um, but I hadn't found a way to incorporate my curriculum until I learned this, which is, it's not the plan. No business plan survives first contact with reality. The great entrepreneurs are the ones that can learn and that can fix whatever is wrong with their business plan. This is a curriculum that's actually about learning, teaching you a process for how to create, test your ideas, document them, test them, get real results, hold yourself accountable. Enough rambling on that. Cool. No, wow. Well, that's. Jeez. That. Um, and then they should get mentoring. Yeah. And talk. So, talk a little bit about that. So social, social capital. Maybe let's get a couple tips in for, you know, geez, you're in a city, a town, wherever the heck it is, big, small. You know, where do you go to seek out that mentoring? How do you tap into social capital? What are the quickest pathways in your mind? Um, it's it, it can be a great challenge if you don't already have something in place. Certainly. We had to build our own out here in Western Mass because. The infrastructure we had was so bad. I mean, what you do is if you, if you don't have a particularly good infrastructure where you are, let's say you're in um, some part of the country that just hasn't got the entrepreneurship bug yet, then find whatever business plan competition there is, the closest one you can, the, the networking events that are specifically about startups, and you go to all those, and you enter the competition, and you, and you place in the competition. Don't worry about winning, just place. Um, because then you'll get to go to dinner with the judges and have a couple drinks with them. Um, and that's where the magic starts to happen. And then you, you know, you ingratiate yourself with them. They learn that you're a nice, smart guy or gal with a cool idea, and then they'll introduce you to their friends. 
So it's always about building relationships with somebody, getting them to fall in love with you, getting them to introduce you to their friends. And if you don't get a good network, that's how you build one, you know, one at a time. Awesome, cool. If uh, you're lucky enough to have something stronger, so that was what we were doing here in Western Mass. Yep. For my top, you know, my top students for my my course at UMass, you know, I wanted they needed mentoring, and I was doing the trying to be the, the great matchmaker, and it was just so expensive <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of time and not effective. And then, so then we created Valley Venture Mentors, which is at valleyventurementors.org, and it's a model that I don't think is very hard to replicate. So I encourage people that are trying to solve the mentoring problem in their communities. You know, for uh, if you can get one law office to uh, you know, give you some space and maybe buy you some cookies and beer or something uh, once a month, uh, and you can throw in some sweat equity, you, you can get this thing off the ground. So uh, what it is, it's a party once a month. Uh, there's beer, wine, and gourmet food. And it used to be that there were 15 to 20, you know, investors and local business executives that would show up. And there was a couple companies. It looks like an accelerator. A couple companies were accepted in. And yep. They were in for six months. But every month, the teams get up and give little presentations. The important – it doesn't seem like rocket science, and it's not, but the execution matters. They present. No one gets asked questions. And each team gets a corner or a breakout room, depending on your structure. And then the audience picks where they want to go. And that's the magic. Because that's cool. before, I had to know what you were good at and figure out to match you up with James. And I never knew enough about you, and I never knew enough about Jane. I certainly didn't know what your wife did or your brother did or what you did in the past life. Yep. You know, so you, by you being able to pick which company you want to hang out with, all that gets figured out by itself. The only people that hang out with the company people that actually care about that company. All the naysayers have gone somewhere else. And now all those people that are passionate about helping this particular company are in a breakout room with that entrepreneur, all having a conversation with each other. Absolute magic. That's cool. That's cool. So, um, yeah, where can people go if they want to maybe learn a little bit more about how you guys are aiming to cultivate this out, out in Western Mass or whether it's learning from your model, uh, gleaning ideas from that, or even potentially getting connected? Where, where are the best uh, places to, to sort of find you and what you're up to now? Uh, if they want to find these resources, valleyventurementors.org. Cool. Uh, clickworkspace.org. And rivervalleyinvestors.com is probably enough to make anybody dizzy. You can just find me on LinkedIn. They're <laughs> probably in that link to everything. Cool. Um, I'm Paul G. Silva. There's a lot of Paul Silvas. So they sure are. For Gordon, and then you'll get closer. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening. And you should definitely look at a co-working space. Also, I should have said that if you're trying to find mentors, you're trying to build collisions, that's why space has become so important. I mean, I went out of my way for the past 15 years to try to create once a month evening events where I can go and hang out with fellow crazy people because, you know, all the rest of the time I was around normal people. Yep. Um, and if you join a co-working space, you're around crazy people all day. Yeah, there's nothing better than all that. Day. Nothing better than being around yeah, crazy people it, all the time. Yeah, because then you'll think you're normal and that's, that's the real trick in life. Yeah. And so you can, you know, the magic that happens at those networking events happens almost every day at my co-working space or any co-working space around the country. So, you know, you got to work somewhere, and they're usually pretty cheap. You know, they're, not, they're, they're a lot cheaper than having an office. They're a yep. lot more expensive than buying coffee at Starbucks, but you'll actually be around fellow crazy people all day. That's cool. Okay, yeah, nice. And, and I think that's practical advice, social capital-wise. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for, for being able to take the half hour here and delving into the full-blown definition of the ecosystem. I appreciate it very much, my man. It's been a pleasure. Cool. <laughs>
Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>